a wall he won't kick down. That sometimes God has to get even aggressive with his love towards us. Sometimes God is willing, out of love, to give us a wake-up call. You ever had a wake-up call? Something that just shook you to your core, something that caused you to, man, turn and change some things about your life, the direction, the decisions, the priorities, something that just shook you to the core. And maybe when you first heard it or when you first got the news or whatever it was, it, it was hard to hear and it wrecked you, but it was a wake-up call. And as we continue in our series in the book of Revelation this morning, Revelation chapter 8 and chapter 9 really is one of those wake-up calls. And it's filled with some hard stuff. <laughs> in fact, you know, when you first read these chapters, you think, man, am I really going to say this in front of these people? And what are people going to think about the God of the Bible when they read about his wrath and some of his judgments. And you think maybe, maybe we need to do a little PR work and you know, kind of protect God's image. And yet when I really think about it, no, we don't need to do that because sometimes a wake-up call is exactly what we need. Sometimes we need to, to hear the truth and somebody just needs to say it and say it straight to us. And the truth is that God's truth is always anchored in God's love. That if, if he's giving us a wake-up call, if he's kicking the doors down, if he's shaking our lives or our circumstances, it's out of his love. And that's what I think we find in, in the book of Revelation chapter 8 and 9. Now, truth is a funny thing, though. Because we're living in a day and age where uh, we've traded absolute truths or ultimate truths for subjective truths. By that I mean, you know, well, you do you. You know, well, I think, hey, what's true for me may not be true for you. What's true for you may not be true for me. So what do we do with that? In our attempt to discover the truth, we, we often begin with, well, what's true for me instead of what is actually true? Let me give you an example of that. Even when it comes to our belief in God or God's word, if we start with, well, what is true for me, we'll start with, well, if God exists and he's real, uh, well, then I'll see what he has to say, and then I'll decide whether what he has to say has any bearing upon my life. The flip side is, if, if there's absolute truth, and if God is real, and God is true, and his word is true, then what it means, we ought to be responding saying, well, then whatever he says goes, and so I need to align my life to his truth. And that can be a wake-up call. It doesn't mean that we have to, to obey it. We don't. But what if God's trying to wake us up out of his love? And that's what we see happening in Revelation chapter 8 and 9. If we're not careful, we'll end up having a Bible like uh, Thomas Jefferson's. Have you heard about his Bible? That he, he took his Bible and he just started to cut and paste to take out some of the things that either he didn't agree with or didn't set well or didn't, he didn't think was needed. This is true. You can look it up. Google it. <laughs> And if we're, if we're not careful, if we deal with truth 
even the hard parts of truth like Thomas Jefferson, we'll find a, a holy Bible of another kind <laughs> that has lots of holes. And we could be missing some of the important things that God is trying to wake us up with. So I want us to go to Revelation chapter 8 and 9. And, and uh, in, in chapter 6 and 7 last weekend, we were reminded that Jesus uh, was the one that was worthy to take the scroll. John sees this window into heaven and Jesus begins to unwrap the scroll and unseal these seven seals. And we made it through the first six of seven seals. And what we find in Revelation chapter 8 is Jesus opens that last seal on this scroll that lays out what the future holds the fulfillment of prophecy, and where things are headed. But before we see judgment start to come again, at the beginning of chapter 8, we see this emphasis on prayer. Look at it with me. It's Revelation 8, beginning in verse 3. And just before this, it says Jesus opens the the seventh scroll. There's silence in heaven. It's like there's this, this holy hush. And it says, Then another angel with gold and a gold incense burner came, and stood at the altar, and a great amount of incense was given to him, catch this, to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. He says the the smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. In the Bible, the, the angel, the word angel literally means messenger. And this picture is that the angels have brought the messages from God's people's prayers up to the very throne room of God himself. And it's rising up to God, swirling around in God's throne room as this beautiful, fragrant offering. Now remember, we said at the beginning of our study of Revelation that this book is not a code to be deciphered or a puzzle to somehow put together, but it was written to real people specifically seven churches in the province of Asia, and God was writing to them to encourage them and to challenge them and to tell them about the future. And they were suffering. And in the midst of their suffering, they were praying. And John gets a glimpse of their prayers and perhaps their parents' prayers and their grandparents' prayers, perhaps even into the future, some of our prayers rising up to the throne room of God. I don't know about you, but when I'm suffering, it's easy to pray. Like, I, 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 you know, God, help us. I mean, even people that don't believe, when they're in the midst of suffering, what do they do? They cry out, oh God, oh God, help. But what sometimes is harder to believe is not whether we can pray, but is God listening? Is God there? Does God care? And the picture that John paints here is one of God accepting all these prayers that are being brought to him and mixed with this incense and being lifted up. I don't, I don't know what you're going through in your life right now, maybe, or what someone that you love or care for is going through right now. I love what David Platt says about this, though. He says, our battle is fierce, and man, we are in a battle. He says, our battle is fierce, but our prayers are effective. And finally, he says, and our God is faithful. I want you to hear that because 
whatever you're facing right now, instead of reacting to it with fears or worry um, or judgment or gossip, (laughs) what would happen if we turned all those things into prayer and knew that our prayers were being carried to God by angelic messengers and that right now, they're swirling around the throne room of God. I want to just take a moment. I just want us to close our eyes. And I want you to think whatever's on your heart right now, whatever you're burdened by, whatever you're concerned over, whatever you're anxious about, just for these moments, would you just cry out to God in your own heart and mind? Tell God about that. Let your prayers be added to those that are swirling in the very throne room of God right now. God, hear our prayers. God, thank you for this holy hush that was in heaven as John received this revelation, as if all heaven just halts because your prayers, the prayers of your people are rising. And so God, whatever we've prayed, whatever has been on our heart, our mind, help us to be reminded that even in the midst of suffering and the judgment that is yet to come in this chapter, you are welcoming, receiving, hearing our prayers. And God, would you move and act on your people's behalf? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what we see happening next in in Revelation 8 is a, a, a litany of judgments. This seventh seal that's open really kind of unlocks what are known as the, the trumpet judgments in the great tribulation time. And it says in verse uh, 7 of chapter 8, the first angel blew his trumpet, look at this, and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down onto the earth, and one-third of the earth was set on fire. One-third of the trees were burned, and all of the green grass was burned up. I mean, this was devastation. It was fearful. It was frightening. God was beginning to unleash more and more judgment. When we read this, it's reminiscent of the plagues back in the Old Testament when God was trying to wake the people up and and get the attention of Pharaoh and the, the Egyptians who had enslaved God's people. And so finally, what does God have to do? He has to pronounce plagues over them. Why? To get their attention, to serve as a wake-up call, to get them to come back to him. And just as God performed those plagues and brought those judgments in that day, what John is witnessing is what's going to happen in the future. And it's meant to to remind us to come back to him, to wake up. Look at what happens in in chapter 9, verse 3 and 4. We don't have time to read all of the plagues, all of the trumpet judgments, in, in verse uh, 3 and 4 of chapter 9, it says, Then the locusts came, and the smoke, 
and descended on the earth, and they were given power to sting like scorpions. They were told not to harm the grass or the plants or the trees, but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Last weekend, we talked about the seal of God, that there was a protection that came to those that turned to Jesus and put their faith in Him. But for everyone else that refused to turn their lives over to God and to submit to His will and His way, now there was judgment coming as a wake-up call. And it's harsh. I mean, there's these locusts, and they're like scorpions, and they're stinging. There's pain. There's suffering. And then it says in verse 18, one-third of all the people on the earth were killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, the burning sulfur that came from the mouths of the horses. Now, this is a third of the earth after last weekend we saw a fourth of humanity was wiped out. And now, after a fourth already is wiped out, another third after that. Now, I don't know about you, but I read this and like, man, this is hard. Verses like this um, are why Thomas Jefferson <laughs> decided to pull things out of his Bible. I don't think Revelation 8 and 9 probably made the cut in his Bible. And if we're honest, when we read some of these things, whether it's harsh things that we read out of the Old Testament or things in Revelation that preview some of the future, these are things that cause people to, to push back from God and say, I don't know if I can believe in a God like that. But why is that? Because we, we hold the subjective truth. If this is going to work out for me, if this sounds okay, if this, if, if this is acceptable to me, then I'll accept it as truth. But what if that truth is rooted in God's love? What if God's trying to get people's attention and wake them up, to warn the seven churches and to challenge and warn us even this day? Dan Kimball in his book, How Not to Read the Bible, is so helpful here. This is what he says. He says, when I struggle with the violence of the Bible, I try to recall the God of the whole Bible, the God who is also patient, loving, compassionate, forgiving. And he says, in my trust in God, it isn't a blind trust whatsoever. It is a deep trust that is built from a lot of questioning and looking at who God is throughout the scriptures, not just the parts, but the whole Bible. This is so important for us because it would be easy for us to read certain parts of the Bible. In fact, maybe Revelation 8 and 9 and go, well, I can't believe in a God like that. He just seems so mean and so harsh and so judgmental. But I think about like in my own life, like what if you guys all, none of you knew me at all. And the only interaction that you had with me was like in my worst moment, <laughs> like when I had blown it with my kids or, 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 or I said something to my wife that wasn't, wasn't honoring. All, you know, all of us have those moments, don't we? <laughs> you think about what, what, what have been some of the worst moments in your life. I'm not, gonna, not talking about the things that happened to you. I'm talking about the way that we acted, the way that we responded, the, the things that we said, the, the actions that we took. And what if everybody only got their opinion of you and me from one incident? Yeah, it wouldn't be a pretty picture, would it? People would think, man, that guy's a pastor. 
People would think, man, she's a Christian? People would think, they go to church? If we were judged just by moments of our life and not the whole, that people couldn't see the other parts of who we are and the heartbeat behind our life. But this is what we do oftentimes with God. We, we pull out one incident of Scripture and we judge God on one action or one incident. And the, the truth of the matter is, this isn't even a bad moment for God. This is a, a righteous moment for God. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't want a God that, that just lets things go, that doesn't punish evil, that doesn't do justice, right? We talked about that last week. All of us are, are longing for someone to make things right again. And, and so Dan Kimball's reminding us, we, we've got to look at the whole of Scripture. And when we look at the whole of Scripture, what do we see? We see a radically loving, pursuing God that he will go to extreme measures to have a relationship with his people. But from beginning to end, the story of history and the story of Scripture is one of God pursuing us, chasing after us, and sometimes shaking us to wake us up to what is true. But how did the people respond? And this is what says something about our human condition. <laughs> that even after all the judgments listed in Revelation chapter 8 and 9 and in the previous chapters as well, it says, but the people who did not die in these plagues, they still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. That word repent, that's what it means. It's to turn to God, to turn away from ourselves, to turn away from our sin, to turn from, away from the idols that we tend to align our lives with, and give our time and attention to. And he says that even the people that weren't killed in this, that were still alive after they've seen the power of God and the, the extreme judgment for not turning to him, what do they do? You'd think they'd be like, I'm sorry, I, I get it, you're real, I understand, I turn to you. But what do they do? In fact, it says they continued to worship Demons and idols made of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood. Idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk. They refuse to turn to God. They refuse to repent and they continue to worship immaterial things. Their own handmade, man-made idols. And while you and I, we may not you know, have a bronze statue in our closet that we bow before every night before we go to bed, we have our idols too, don't we? They just look different. <laughs> our idols look like cars or boats, or, and there's nothing wrong with cars or boats, except for when those become everything to us. Tim Keller says an idol is anything that we give more time, attention, resources to than God himself. That when we find our meaning and our purpose are significant, in our stuff rather than our Savior. And anything can become an idol. You think about it. Uh, when, when we can only find our meaning and our purpose and our worth in our, in our work, well, guess what? Work has become an idol. Accomplishment has become an idol. 
Uh, when, when, when we only find value and worth and feel good about ourselves when we're looking good. When, you know, when we've, we've kept the diet and, oh, we can fit into that dress. And we, I mean, I'm talking about the ladies right now. I'm not talking about me. Okay. Like, and, 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 and what is it? Appearance becomes an idol. Or materialism becomes an idol. Or having, gosh, when, when we're only happy and we're only fulfilled and we, we only feel like we're, we're really uh, accomplished something when, when our kids are, you know, really doing well and being good and, and we, can, we can make family even an idol. And what this passage is trying to remind us is that our, our issue actually is not with God or his judgment, our issue with, is with God himself. Because at, at the core of who we are, we want to be the God of our own lives, or, or we want to have the things or have the priorities that we want to have and follow the things that are important to us. Our, our issue is not God's judgment. It's a, having a God at all. A God who might ask something of us. A God who might say something to us that doesn't jive with our life, that, that doesn't fit, you know, into our perspective. And that's, that's where we get sidetracked. And that's what was happening in this day that, that, that John is getting a revelation and looking into the future and saying, this is coming. And he, so, so he's warning, he's trying to wake us up to walk away from the idols of our lives and to surrender to the one true God so that we'll be marked with him and protected no matter what may come in the future. Ian Paul says it this way. He says, the irony here in Revelation 8 and 9 is that in rejecting the true God and his worship, they are worshiping the very things that are causing their misery. And the same thing can happen in your life and my life. That the things that we make the idol in our life, we get a temporary fix from, but then they consume us and we can't stop. And they cause us problems and misery and frustration and stress because we haven't put our hope in the only hope, the hope of Jesus. That we haven't found our life and our purpose and our meaning in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And when we do that, then when he brings in other blessings in our life, God is the one that helps us navigate those things and use them properly and actually be able to enjoy them in the right perspective with him first and everything else secondary. Sometimes we need a wake-up call. And when God speaks his truth or acts even in judgment like he does in Revelation chapter 8 and 9, his truth is always anchored in his love. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're here and, and this just, it resonates deeply. And you're grateful. Like God, I, I, I can remember when God woke me up. He had to shake my life. He had to do something extreme to get my attention. And I turned to him. And it's been life-changing. 
but maybe you're asleep. Maybe you've been going on in your life and everything else takes a priority. And Jesus is saying, wake up. Come to me. Be prepared. I don't want you to have to face what the people in Revelation chapter 9 ended up facing. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you love us enough to shake our lives. God, that you're not just just a God of love and mercy, but you're a God of truth and righteousness and holiness. And God, wherever we have kind of misaligned things, God, would you realign our lives and help us turn to you. God, I pray that that you would prepare us and you would make us more and more like your son Jesus, and that we would find our whole life, our whole purpose in a relationship with him so that the other things that are blessings in life truly can be blessings but not be idols so that we might run to you when we see you running, chasing after us. To that end, we pray, Jesus, and ask for your help. Amen. Would you stand with me and let's pronounce this uh, benediction over one another together this morning as we go. Revelation 1-4, say it with me. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. God bless you guys. Have a great rest of your Sunday.